Sometimes it's hard to get started. For one, I can appreciate through the quality of collective, accumulating presence, that I sense when I um, come into the hall and have a chance to sit with you all, as well as the opportunity to check in with each of you individually as we reflect together on your practice. I can uh, really be... uh, touched by the sincerity and persistence and patience beginning again of your efforts and uh, appreciate and cherish the special occasion that's offered to us by places like this, this forest refuge, this beautiful forested land. Set up so well and and supported behind the scenes so beautifully by the managers and support crew here. In a, in a world that is, uh, in so many ways, like that haunting image in uh, Yeats's The Second Coming, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, or something about a widening gyre the center cannot hold, something like mere anarchy loosed upon the world. There's, there's so much madness to have the possibilities and to be with it actually happening with you all of uh, connecting, remembering, grounding what is truly trustworthy, these refuges, this Buddha, this wakefulness that can open to, investigate, connect with the Dhamma, the way things actually are, and that we can encourage one another. The wonderful power of Sangha. But sometimes it, uh, as you know, as we we all can experience on this arduous path, that it is not easy facing our tendencies. It's easy to follow them. 
I used to think spontaneity, they thought rules weren't so, rules were just oppressive and you could be free. But one can be spontaneously stupid and realize, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. Can't believe I did that. And then one set that in motion. So what feels like spontaneity is actually, as I'm slowly realized over the years, is being enslaved to our tendencies. When they're virtuous, when there's deeply ingrained tendencies to generosity and honesty and wise reflection, then, then <laughs> there can be spontaneous, natural beauty, harmony, goodness. But when we unconsciously follow our unskillful tendencies, then there's, there's just entanglement. So, so when we come to places like this, where the distractions are really limited, we have periods of really just, through our own, not through a forest refuge police force, but through our own rising up from within, a wish to not just be a perpetual wanderer in samsara, but a wish to free ourselves from just unconsciously, continually generating suffering, conflict, birth and death. And so when we pause in periods of sitting, periods of walking, when we surrender to the silence, then these old tendencies uh, are, they're not just in control. That friction then is not, is not easy to bear. But as we've been reflecting that those moments of uh, dukkha, whether they're dukkha-dukkha, whether it's just you know, an incredibly debilitating pain in the back, or just an overwhelming sense of exhaustion, or whether it's even that more subtle dukkha of the uh, having had a beautiful and still having a little of it, peaceful state, but then wondering how to keep it and how to keep it from, and thinking that that person is, they're breathing too loud. <laughs> and so can you believe how they walk in a, in a place for advanced practitioners? Sounds like an, would say elephant, but that's, that's dissing elephants. elephants. Elephants are quiet, they're fluid. I mean, that, 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 that's... And then, oh, where's my peace now? <sighs> that subtle suffering of the even happiness because of its changing nature is unreliable dukkha. And this sankhala dukkha, the most uh, subtle of, of all, this focuses of the grasping mind, whatever the grasping mind tries to claim 
identify with, find austerity abiding in these aggregates of being, in forms, in feelings, in moods, in circumstances. In the senses, because of this uh, ever-changing, ephemeral nature, when the grasping mind tries to claim something, leads to, it eludes us. So sometimes practice can be uh, really, really uh, frustrating. It can seem impossible. And then we can start calculating, oh my goodness. I mean, I underestimated it. I mean, my, my desire problem is big time. My aversion problem is huge. My denial, delving into exhaustion, sleepy, dull problems. We can just think, oh God, it'll be decades, lifetimes. then it's just important to remember that this, this dharma, this true nature, is not somewhere else. Really to encourage ourselves, it's very important to have this samaditi, this right seeing, balanced seeing, seeing in accord with the way things are. How we, we, we chanted every, every day these qualities of the dharma, that this, this peaceful, unmoving dharma is sanditiko, it is always here and now. He didn't say only here and now when there's no sleepiness, only here and now when there's no uh, mountains of desire. It's always sanditiko, akaliko, timeless. It's not just on the good days, this dharma is timeless just when we deserve it, when everything's gone wrong. I just can't work it out. And I had it and... <sighs> Akaliko, the Dharma, it's not limited. It's ehi pasiko. It's always ehi means beckoning us. The inherent in this Dharma is something that's ahi pasiko, inviting us, come see, come see, it's now, here now. Beautiful saying of the Buddha I like. You can just, I'll just even like the sounds of the Pali. A tang santang. E tang panitang yari dang sabasankara samato sabupati patinis sago tanhakayo virago nirodo nibbanang. It goes, This is peaceful. 
this. He's not talking about some special state somewhere else. He's talking, he's breathing, he's standing right with his monks and nuns and lay followers and whoever else was around. Etang Santang, this is peaceful, this is sublime. Yadidang Sabha Sankara Samato. That is to say, and this is the key phrase, Sabha Sankara Samato. All these sankaras, all the ways that we're moment after moment creating these realities with our thoughts, samato, they're calmed, they're stilled. Sabha sankara samato. Next line, sabu pati patinisako. All that we're claiming is mine. Sabupati, upadi, all these acquisitions, these things that we think, me, my reputation, my problems, my, all these boulders that Ajahn Chah talks about that we're carrying around. Patinisago, sabupati, patinisago, we give them back. Relinquish. That's such a key phrase, this letting go, giving back. What isn't ours? Tanhakkeo means the. So it's the cutting through, seeing through desire, dispassion, cessation, nibbana, nibbana. The Buddha compared our true nature to the sky. Another of my favorite succinct, profound utterances of his is there are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there The world delights in conceptual proliferation, complexity. Buddhas delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. No footprints in the sky. Why not? There's no solid place for it to land. What appears in the sky dissolves. You won't find the sage out there. We're we're looking for the sacred, the, the truth, the 
the goal, the happiness, we're always, that's this becoming energy, moving to get over there. When I've got my problem solved, when I'm away from this big time obstruction, when I've done enough practice, that little, that's a sankara, that's creating the sense of the sacreds out there. The sacreds out there is actually a flock of birds flying through the sky. So sounds dissolve. The out there created by the sankara, the attachment to the so-called reality of that thought over there. When we touch it with wise reflection, we see that it's something that appears and dissolves back in the sky like listening. You won't find the sage out there. The world delights in papancha. It's a key phrase in the Dharma. Papancha means this proliferation that keeps exploding. Our teacher Arjun Samedo said, you know, we worry about nuclear proliferation. He said even more. Toxic is conceptual proliferation, which generates all these problems. It's called papancha. The world delights in papancha, all these distinctions and better and worse in me and you and here and there and yesterday, tomorrow. Buddha's delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. No eternal conditioned things. Whatever we think is a thing is so solid. Like we know from our practice, the moods can seem so solid. When we figured it out and really, God, yeah, now now it's all clicked, finally, golly, ten years, well, actually a little over ten years. We climb onto it, that's called grasping, upadana, climb on, and then it shifts. A doubt, a worry, a painful feeling. There are no eternal conditioned things. So as practitioners, as we start to, through our being with the body, cultivating this mindfulness, stabilizing, being with the the breath and the body, honing up that instrument of wise reflection, we're then able to see that every sensation every feeling. Just like right now. Though concepts talk about the
what is it? I've even forgotten. Tuesday, Tuesday night talk. Kitty Sorrow's talk. That sounds like a thing. And it's, it can seem so substantial, substantially either boring or, yeah, you can't really get it going today. Exciting. And when, when we don't give attention, then these concepts tinged with this papancha then explode and create all sorts of complexity. When we have a, an it, a, a you, then there's a me. Then when it starts to change, we have to create time. As soon as there's a sense of a thing, we believe that there's a thing, then as it shifts, we've, we've got to account for that. That then creates aging, death, birth. But a practitioner, someone who's going for refuge, aligning with the listening, with the knowing, then we start to see all these things that seem so solid, like this Dharma talk. My practice is becoming otherwise every instant. So-called talk is phrases, sounds that keep dissolving. And yet all those things of me and you and here and there and what is mine can seem so real, but as we start to see they're impermanent, unreliable nature, then we start, how are they mine? We can call it mine, me and mine, but it keeps dissolving. The essence of anatta, not self, is that it's, they're not possessions. We can call it my body, my moods, but they're not possessions. They're not self. They're empty of solidity. We think the sacred's over there. But in a moment when we really touch those thoughts with presence, let them dissolve take us back to this boundless, ever still, what the Buddha called this original brightness. Return. And the way back is this giving back, this patinisaga, what the Buddha called this softening, relinquishing. In any moment, oh no, 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 can't, can't, can't be now because, oh well, I'm, I have just too many problems. What if I have the too many problems? What if we see, no, 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 but, but, but I have the too many problems. What if we just honor, but, but I have the too many problems? No, that, that's true, it's me. Me. We must hear that inner sound, me. 
hear it come up and dissolve. Don't you play that trick on me. Me. And dissolve. Let it be what it is. Condition. Perfectly what it is. But when we take these conditions to be, when they're concretized by these concepts, me and mine, the world gets fragmented, and then we get contracted. We can be so overwhelmed by discouraging thoughts that we, we know, we want to, we just, we feel hopeless. The Buddha had a beautiful phrase. It's like ignoring, the Buddha said, hundreds of thousands of clear, pure seas and taking notice of only a single bubble, seeing it as the entire ocean. when we get contracted around these thoughts, these feelings, it's, it's true, it's real, this is real. I'm, and it is real, there is a reality there, but it's momentary. And we're not aware that this bubble is popping in the midst of a vast ocean that's always here and now, of silence luminous presence, awareness. Whatever word we give it is another bubble. Just so people wouldn't get the wrong idea. He didn't want people to think, oh, this is bad, this, this waking up process. He, he gave like 30 synonyms. I don't know if I have... I won't read all 30, but just... These are words that are only words, but pointing to what cannot be captured because the words are these bubbles that keep popping, pop, and what remains? That listening, presence, When the heart is continually seeking the sacred out there, the longed for out there, the what is really real out there, because language, being fooled by our own language, we, we, its success is out there. When I finally do that, when I get rid of that, then that's endless. That's called samsara. But when there is a a measure of recognition, ah, especially seeing the nature of thoughts themselves that are generating all all these sankharas, these seemingly true, real fabrications, creations. When we start to see them dissolving and start to recognize this unmoving background. Remember the first disciple that 
broke through Kandanya, that image that helped him. The sunbeam and seeing the dust dancing. But he noticed the space wasn't moving. The dust was dancing. Wanting the dust not to dance is, is like recipe for frustration. But the dust dancing didn't trouble the space. Or he compared it to a guest coming to the hotel and then leaving, but the host remains. It wasn't that he crushed and got rid of the guests. The phenomenon, that which is appearing and manifesting, but he widened, realized rather than being obsessed with a bubble, letting the bubble be what it is. It's there and pop, it's gone. And noticing this ocean, that when we do that, the Buddha called that freedom was one of his words, or peace. Truth was another phrase, uh, word. The subtle, the other shore, the everlasting was a word. The deathless, the wonderful. The safe, the refuge, this tendency to be so enchanted by our thinking and feelings and these focuses of the grasping mind. The Buddha encouraged to really made a big thing of seeing this proliferating, conceptual proliferation and, and encouraged us to train ourselves. not to just be lost in that. It's not a war against thought, but it's honoring thought. Let thought be a, what it is, a servant. Notice thought appears and then it dissolves and the knowing remains. There's a quality of presence that remains when a thought's there and then when a thought's gone. A thought can be trained in a servant. So in our samadhi training, we saw how the Buddha encouraged us to to learn to moderate thought. There's a time for long, expansive thoughts, but remember we've, we've learned how to have a shorter thought, to train the attention to when we're wanting to unify our being, rest and restore. So a thought like, I'm sitting. How is it brings us to the present and then we just open the awareness. Or a thought like breathing in, breathing out. Or bud on the in-breath, toe. It's a shorter thought that directs the attention. So it's it's useful, but reveals its own ephemeral nature. The Buddha encouraged us in training in Nipapancho. He, he, when um, 
the king of the gods, Saka. There's a famous teaching uh, where the the heavenly realm of the 33, which is a few realms up, this Saka appeared to the Buddha. The Buddha was meditating, but he finally got his attention and through a helper, and the and he uh, was very respectful. But he approached the Buddha and and he was he asked the Buddha. He said, uh, you know, why do beings wanting peace and harmony end up living in conflict and hate? Why do beings wanting peace and harmony live up in conflict and hate? And the, you know, the, the Buddha, he said, well, because of envy and stinginess. And uh, so Saka contemplated that, was quite pleased. Envy, that's wanting, envious of what someone else has. So the, the good stuff is over there. And then stinginess, the good stuff is what I'm clinging on to. I'm not going to share it. But Saka said, yeah, I love that answer, he said, but uh, how does envy and stinginess come about? And then the Buddha said, well, that comes about by liking and disliking, or what you really cherish, yes, or what one really doesn't want. So it's that wanting and not wanting, what, what what is dear and not dear, Anyway, Saka kept tracing it back and uh, asking the Buddha, but what gives rise to that? And the Buddha talked about how desire gives rise to these states then of making that big distinction between what I really want and what I really don't want. And then the Buddha talked how thinking gives rise to the desire. And then Saka said, yeah, but what gives rise to thinking? And the Buddha said, Papancha Sanya Sankha. Sanya means perceptions, Sankha, these concepts, a concept that has a tendency to just proliferate. Papancha means proliferation. Sanya means perception, Sankha, a perception concept. Like what? (laughs) Me. Me. That's just a concept. You get a me, guess what? You get a you. Get a here, you get a there. Once you have a thing, as that thing is shifting, that's decay, that's aging, it's time. It's all rooted in this idea that there are things. So the Buddha said this concepts, these thoughts that are, they're not even full-blown thoughts, they're just like a concept. Like here, there, even good, bad. If one's not honoring and aware with mindfulness of what they actually are, they're actually what they are. They're words. 
concepts, then our reality gets fractured and fragmented. So this papancha, the Buddha said, leads to thinking, desire, and splitting apart what we really want and what we really don't want. Envy, stinginess, and conflict traces it back. Saka said, well, how do, how, what do we do about it? And the Buddha, he gave a training that whatever that we're doing, if it's pleasant, if it's unpleasant, if it's a mixture, you know, first we, it's not that thought's useless. Thought is helpful for discerning whether it's skillful or not, whether it's wholesome or not. Whether it's pleasant, there can be wholesome pleasant things, there can be wholesome unpleasant things. When we're practicing, sometimes it's painful, but we're using that, that effort that for contemplation, for learning, not just masochism, but if whatever we're doing, if thought has helped us sense, no, this is, this is something that is useful to do, then the Buddha said, then there's two kinds. There's the kind of that activity when you're thinking. There's vitaka vichara, there's just thinking and evaluating. And it's still wholesome. But the Buddha said, when you can learn to do it without that, it's of a higher quality. So we can be walking and thinking, oh, look at that, look at that, that's very interesting and it's wholesome to be getting exercise and appreciating nature and yeah, yeah, wow, I surely enjoy nature and wow, it's amazing to be out here. It's wholesome to a certain degree. The Buddha said that when you can learn to do that without the vitaka vichara. So encouraging us to learn to moderate thought, to appreciate the impermanence of thought, to learn to rest when there's no thought. This is a training. For example, one can just be walking and thinking. But even if if one just whispers, especially on retreats, a wonderful opportunity, just whisper just the word, walking, just once, walking. Let that word appear and then dissolve. And then just for a few seconds, just enjoy the silent, receiving the the miracle of walking. When we don't, when we're at the mercy of papancha, then the reality is much more in the words. And then we can really, when the words really, when we're really tyrannized by the words, oh, another day, another impossible meditation, yet another Dhamma talk, how many, my God. Same old faces. Look in the mirror, oh God, me. Words make us think we know things. Oh yeah, them. 
Oh God, there's that again. It strips the magic to also, words are useful, they're powerful, but to also train ourselves to have moments when we're drinking tea or something. Drinking tea, appreciate the thoughts that are there, it's not that they're bad. Drinking tea is not an evil occupation. But even having moments of just noticing those moments when the mind is not thinking. It's not that just no thought is the end of suffering. But when we're addicted to thinking and conceptual proliferation, then we, we don't know the background. So the, the fetters, that which obstructs us from entering the stream, what? From really knowing Nibbana, from having that real experience of the peace that's always here and now, that the Buddha said, this is peaceful. This is sublime. Those first three fetters are all about our relationship to thought. Learning just to notice, oh, thought. First one's about views of ourself. What's called Sakaya Ditti. It's important just to know that they're thoughts. Remember the first time it, it took my teachers had been saying it all, of, all along about letting go, but I just didn't, it didn't click. But when I read Anando, my dear friend, our dear friend, uh, teacher and friend, he's passed on now. He uh, was a Marine in Vietnam and a uh, radio man. And God, in the Tet Offensive, got almost killed. Shell hit him in the back of the head and got shot in the, in the back as well, in the medevac. But anyway, he amazingly survived. And uh, almost 30, I think about 30 years later, where he got, when he used to shave his head, there was a big hole where they had to take that piece of the skull out. So there was a dent that was tricky to shave. Uh, but 30 years after that wound, he got a brain tumor and, uh, and uh, died from that original wound. But uh, after Vietnam and surviving that wound, he became a wonderful monk and abbot of Chithurst Monastery and a dear teacher and friend of Tanisha and mine. So when he went off to train in England when I was still in Thailand, he sent me this book, I Am That which were conversations with, with Sri Nisargadatta. And it was the, the way he put the same principle in front of me, but it clicked. He, he talked about all the thoughts, thinking I am this, I am that. But he just, he mentioned the word the background. There's an ever-present background. 
surrounding every thought, every experience that makes it all possible. Like this space that Kandanyo contemplated when he saw the dust dancing. Or the guests that were coming and going, but the host remained. But that was the first time I really had that that concept of that which remains. And being very competitive, having been a wrestler and pushing myself in my youth, I had all sorts of judgments of I'm getting closer, oh God, I'm losing it, I'm getting better, I'm getting worse. All these views about how I was doing. But after reading that, it was so wonderful to be able to just let all the views come. To notice there were views. Welcome them in. All these judgments, views. I'm this way, I'm that way. To just let them be what they are, but to recognize, to dwell in, to not just be so contracted around the thoughts and whether they're good or bad and whether they're me. This not me, this letting them be just what they are, dharmas, allowed me to touch into this background. So transforming. That first fetter is about views about ourselves. Doubts. Second fetter. Oh, no, no, but should I do this? Should I do that? No, 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 but please. Should I do more? More tough practice or less tough practice? Should I focus on the nostrils or should I focus on the... I mean, some teachers say if you focus on the nostrils, you might get stuck in a jhana. Personally, I don't know too many people that that's a problem for. No, you should focus on the, the, the belly. I mean, there's all kind of views, doubts, but to the power of being able to recognize this is a Tao. It's thoughts that are going round and round wanting an answer. And even if we get the answer, the Buddha appears, Kitty Sorrow, well done. You got it. Do that. Hallelujah. Excuse me. Praise Buddha. Then somebody else appears. You thought that was the Buddha? You fell for that one? Don't you know Mara's disguise? Didn't you see the light was different? He wasn't... That was a hot heat, not a cool heat. Oh, God. But the, the liberation of being able to know, ah, oh, it's doubt. They're bubbles. Taking a bubble to be the whole universe, this thoughts telling us you're the best, you're the worst. It was so funny, the wonderful, celebratory to just invite all the thoughts, all the views, all the doubts. Like flocks of birds flying through the sky. The sky doesn't fight them. That's what birds do. That's what thoughts do. Doubts. That which knows the doubt is not 
doubting. You might not know what to do next, but one's abiding with faith, trust, the refuge, knowing. Third fetter, Silabhata Baramasa, views about practice. No, no, you, you've got to do at least so-and-so hours of sitting, otherwise you don't have a chance. You're only sitting for 35 minutes? No way. That's a view. It's a r- you don't do walking enough. You do do walking. You don't do bow. You don't do bowing. All these are skillful means, but they're they're views about practice. All these first three fetters are about our relationship to the cognitive faculty. It's got to be this way, got to be that way. We're still believing in those. Then when we... I love bowing. But if I can't bow because I hurt myself, I've been hurt before where I can't do my bowing. Does that mean, oh, I'm cut off from the divine, cut off from the divine? They were skillful means. But when we don't realize our views about practice, then we're just so bound to that. A moment of freedom, wherever we are, however it is, whatever our mood, how hopeless it's felt today. Or how wonderful it's felt today. Whatever the thoughts, views, what if they just soften, let them be that. some reason I was remembering Anando, our friend today, and he was fierce practitioner, but a gracious leader. But Tanish and I both remember a incident where uh, when he was the abbot of the monastery, there was a newly ordained monk who'd been around for some years, but he was a newly ordained monk who also had some serious views and opinions. He was a, in his former lay life, he'd been a millionaire, big business tycoon, and really knew how to work the world, and very confident and charming and mischievous and sly and could drive you crazy. Anyway, for whatever reason, Ajahn Anando uh, was having uh, quite a few run-ins with his monk. And then one day, they just got into some sort of heated, heated thing. And Anando, this former Marine, 
he just said, all right, to this monk, let's go outside. And he just... <laughs> and uh, and they, they went out to the front of the house and where Nando had his fists. And I tell you what, I don't think it would have been good for the other guy. I don't <laughs> care how successful he was. But uh, at some point, something kicked in <laughs> to Ananda when he was just getting ready to flatten this guy, <laughs> this uh, recalcitrant disciple, uh, who wasn't really a disciple, but was a, to be trained. And I guess Ananda thought, well, gosh, I'm a monk. <laughs> I have a discipline. I think one of the rules is not to... <laughs> smash my fellow monks in the face. But he caught it. And he was all heated up. They both were heated up. And he just, he just, the fist, he just put his hands together. And then he just relaxed, closed his eyes, and then just melted to the ground, touched his head to the ground and bowed to this monk that he did not like. He bowed to the Dharma. He bowed to his faith in the path. He bowed to this all-consuming bubble of rage. He saw that it, it's, it's not the whole universe. It's in this ocean of, of all this cultivated, disciplined, boundless, Awareness, he'd been, he called him, he woke him up, and he melted. And then when he stood up, the other monk was crying, then they both were crying, and they hugged each other. I'm not saying it was the end of their problems, <laughs> but the alchemy, the power of softening, Bowing, remember this is whatever it is, is arising and ceasing within this background. What the Buddha called the original brightness. It's very powerful. It is the primal, said the Buddha, bright essence of consciousness that can bring forth all conditions. But because of conditions, you consider it to be lost. Living beings lose sight of the original brightness. Therefore, though they use it to the end of their days, they are unaware of it. And without intending to, they enter the various destinies. They were interested entering when they were about ready to fight the destiny of the titans, the battling warriors. But Ananda remembered. He was just, all he had to do was he just bowed, melted. Sabupati patinisako. All that he thought was me and mine, he just softened and gave it back to nature. It became dharma. And then what was always already there appears. The relief, the peace.
as Ajahn Chah says, Nibbana is within samsara. Sasara is right here within Nibbana. Where it was hot, that very place is where one discovers coolness. Right where it's cool, right there when there's grasping, the heat appears. Letting be, letting go, whoop, it's cool. What a mystery. One of my favorite conclusions saying of the Buddha is, this dharma, this reality cannot be described. Words fall silent before it. This mysterious boundless, ever present nature is responsive, all inclusive. It's where we all truly merge and meet. May we finish this blessed day by wishing that may all beings share in the goodness of our work, our practice, above, below, and all around, like a pebble dropping into a pool, effortlessly sends ripples, expanding ripples, in all directions as we relax and just let go of what can't be grasped and plunge into the fathomless depth of presence. May all beings be touched. May all beings wake up to this peacefulness that is inviting us right here within us. Amen.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.